man, he's a weird cryptocurrency kid or something like that. But <laughs> I was true to myself and I had fun with it. And I've also been blessed to make a bunch of different connections with people that have like minds, you know what I'm saying, in that type of space and things like that. So, you know, you just kind of got to go for it. Hey, everybody, this is Michael Red, and welcome to the Betting on Yourself podcast, where I interview successful entrepreneurs, athletes, and other top performers who rose to the top, took success into their own hands, and bet on themselves. Today, I'm talking with my friend and NBA star, Spencer Dinwiddie. Spence and I have a lot in common. He suffered an ACL injury his junior year in college while playing for the Colorado Buffaloes, but persevered and was drafted by the Detroit Pistons in 2014 to eventually make his way to the Brooklyn Nets, where he continues to be an unstoppable force, both on and off the court. There are so many instances where Spence has bet on himself in his career, from the court to developing his tennis shoe line. We talk about his journey, what it means to surround yourself with the right people, and how having a no-regrets attitude with a resilient spirit are essential to achieving your long-term goals. Spence, man, thank you again, bud. Thank you again, man. Following your career, uh, there's a lot that we got in common, and I'm (laughs) looking forward to getting into the conversation, uh, including the ACL uh, injury uh, that I suffered and that you suffered in college. And uh, you got a remarkable resume. I think your life, man, not even just your career, I think your life em- embodies this show, embedding in yourself. Mm-hmm. And I've been a fan of yours and, and, and watched the rise of your career, both on the court and off the court. Uh, and it's very impressive. And we'd we'll love to collaborate with you on on, on that beyond the show. But um, yeah, man, just talk to me about what is betting on yourself and how has that meant to you in your life? Oh, man. Um, it's a foundational piece, really, of the whole journey, if you look at it. And anytime this kind of concept comes up, I always have to go to my parents and how they raised me. You know what I mean? They, they always told me, you can do anything you want. You know what I mean? As long as you put in the requisite work and, you know, you maintain a passion for it and a focus for it. Like, you can be president. You can play in the NBA. You can do whatever. And so you know, taking that mentality and and applying it to things that I love uh, is is how I got here. I mean, you know, my my final two college choices were Colorado and Harvard. Most of my extended family was like, hey, go to Harvard. You had a nice six-figure job waiting for you when you graduate. Never have to worry about anything in your life because the alumni network is the smart play. You're only the 150th best player in your high school class. Only McDonald's All-Americans go to the league, but don't do it. And I said, hey, guys, I'm going to the Pac-12. I'm going to prove all those West Coast schools wrong. And I'm going to go to the league in two years. And it took me three, but, you know, got that nonetheless. That's phenomenal, man, because when I when I talk about you, and I've been excited to talk to you, man, affirmation, right, from the family, mm-hmm. from your father, uh, the two-parent home, uh, really solidified your identity. Yep. Which enabled you to become versatile and diverse with your perspective on life and what you can accomplish. Does that make sense? One thousand percent. I mean, that that really is everything. You know, my, my dad raised me on a foundation of respect. Like I told you, they told me that I could do anything in life. My mom told me to mm-hmm. focus on school and, you know, to hopefully be compassionate. And so, you know, when you talk about being very academics focused early in life, trying to be compassionate and aware of other people's perspectives, like you said, to respect people in all walks of life, but to have an a resiliency. I won't even say like necessarily a confidence, right? Because confidence grows as you kind of confirm your own hopes, dreams, beliefs, right? But to have a resiliency to believe that, you know, no matter what, no matter what hardship comes my way, I'm going to be able to push through it because my dad told me I could, or my mom told me I could, is how you get through the early struggles. You know what I mean? When you're seven or eight and you, and you face adversity and your parents say, you know, well, you got to work harder, but don't worry. We believe in you. Well, you're not going to think the other seven or eight year old that told you you sucked was right. You're going to think your parents were right. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean, and that, that instills that resiliency and that ability to bounce back from from hardships and, and also the, the work ethic to understand that I'm not just going to bounce back because I want to bounce back. I'm going to bounce back because I want to, but I'm also going to put that plan and that work behind it that allows me to then succeed. So, you know, big credit to my parents. Absolutely, man. 
Was there a pivotal moment that stands out above the rest? Um, and I know there's been a number of moments in your your career and your life where you had to take a bet on yourself, but was it the decision to go to Colorado over Harvard? Was that a pivotal moment or was there that moment when you tore your knee in college after having an incredible start to come back and say, I want to continue my career? So which of those moments or maybe before that? I think the decision on college was a pivotal moment from the standpoint of them empowering me, right? Because I'm a 17-year-old kid at the time. And they're like, hey, you know, and, and my parents told me, they were like, look, do what you want. As long as you're prepared to live with whatever path you go down, then the decision's right for you. You know what I mean? And, and they, they would talk about not having regrets at the end of your life or, you know, later on in life. So they were like, hey, if you're going to go to Harvard and always regret that you never pushed yourself, you know, in the basketball field, then it's not right for you. And if you're going to go to Colorado and not make the NBA and always regret that you never went to Harvard, then it's not right for you. You know what I mean? So like they would present the perspectives of like, you have to stand on your decision and own that for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was, that was pivotal in terms of empowering. And what also kind of set the stage for the ACL decision, um, like still declaring for the draft, even though I was hurt and wasn't going to be able to work out or anything like that. And, you know, them saying like, hey, you'll probably slide to the second round instead of being, you know, lottery or near lottery. You already had that empowerment from three years prior. And now you're looking at your situation and there, there was no regrets there. I was ready and confident in what I could do. And I felt that, you know, I want to be in the NBA. I want to play. That that was and is my dream. You know, I'm going to push myself to work harder, come back from this ACL injury, enter camp, you know what I mean, beat these guys who are already established. I'm not going to, you know, take what to me was the safer route of like, all right, you know, I'll, I'll do some college rehab and I'll probably, even if I'm a step slow, I'll be able to beat these guys because, you know, I'm familiar with it and comfortable with it. It was about accomplishing that dream and being there. And pushing yourself and, and saying, like, regardless, like this, this isn't going to be an excuse, draft position or not. Like there, there is no excuse here. You make this happen. That's incredible, man. I mean, that fire and that passion, it actually, you know, as reading your story and discovering your life, man, like that passion to come back from the ACL to make the decision to go to the NBA came from being rated the 150th player in high school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like 150 or like 148 or something like that. It was, it was down there. Wow. I barely cracked the rivals. <laughs> wow. Wow. You strike me as the guy, man, that from that time on, like, failure is not an option. And I heard you mention about safety. Like, I feel like safety can be overrated, right? The, the familiar mm-hmm. route is, is, is safe. But mm-hmm. you take the opposite route because you love the challenge, man, of overcoming. Yeah, I mean, I, I think most things in life, that are worth having aren't gained through just being comfortable. You know, even the NBA and, and, and stuff like that, when, when people think that people just, uh, you know, were blessed and just fell into the NBA and all this other stuff. Like to me, I look at it as I did an internship from four years old to 20 years old. I did 16 years of unpaid internship to get to that place. You know what I'm saying that's the work they put in. I mean, like, so why would failure be an option for me? Why would I throw 16 years of work, away when I'm right there. You know, why, why would I get to this point and then now believe that I'm not as good? That doesn't make any sense to me. If I got here, it's for a reason. If I can win in practice, then I can win in the game. You know what I mean? And, and, and the more you adopt it, I mean, you, you talked about affirmation and, and kind of energy and what you put out there and believe. Like, it's a, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Part of the reason I am here beyond my parents is just from the fact that every day, I woke up, well, I dreamt about it. I woke up and then I believed like, this is what's going to happen. And it's going to happen. Like it's, it's there, there's not another option here, not from a necessity standpoint, but because this is how bad I want this. And so every ounce of energy is going to be driven towards accomplishing it. So how are you, how are you going to stop me if I'm applying every fiber of my being into something? It's so powerful to hear you say that, man, because we have a lot of listeners that listen to the show who are entrepreneurs as well. And we'll get into that portion of your life in a bit. But like the whole notion of a plan B, right? And a contingency plan. Talk about that, man, for a second. I think there are areas where those are needed. You know what I mean? Like when you talk about 
an NBA player, for example, he's going to make the bulk of his money in a, you know, three to 15 year window. So like putting some aside in terms of having savings for, you know, a rainy day or your base level. Yeah, that that's your plan B. That's your safety or whatever it is. Right. I'm not saying blow your money or do whatever, like all that stuff. Right. But in the sense of pursuing a passion or really going after something and, and you mentioned startup uh, lightly that startups aren't for the fate of heart. Like you have to be flexible, adaptable. You got to grind. You're going to be told no way more than you're going to be told yes. And that's coming from an NBA player. So, you know, having a startup when you're not an NBA player, you're going to get told no 10 more, 10 times more. You know what I mean? So it's not for the fate of heart. And you have to have, like I said, that resiliency, that conviction and not really believe in a plan B. Like you have to be flexible and adaptable, but if you're trying to get to the goal, then you get to the goal, whichever route it takes. You know what I mean? So don't don't be so rigid that if you can't get there, that you're one path, right? But like, if there's a goal, there shouldn't be a, a plan B. Really inspirational because that carried you to being drafted in the second round. And your attitude was like, listen, I'm in. Uh, mm-hmm. And now that I'm in, I'm gonna make good on being in. And then you go through playing with the Pistons. And then you go to being traded to the Bulls and then being waived and then being reassigned again to the G League and then being with the Bulls again and being waived again. And so mm-hmm. I know your camp around you or friends or associates were saying like, man, this is a, this is a, for you, it was more <laughs> like, this is part of the journey. This is the scenic route. Yep. Yep. I mean, the, the crazy part is, and to this day, to this day, I still haven't lost one-on-one. And the reason why I bring that up is because that was one of the things that I actually clung to in in the hardest moments and, you know, feeling like, man, maybe I won't really get that shot in the league. You know what I'm saying? I, I just got cut twice. I'm in the G League. You know, they, they say the overseas offer is pretty lucrative. You know, all, all that stuff to, to that effect and really having you weigh decisions on your life, right? Because you have a family and you have other people that you want to provide for and, 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 and do right by. So in going through that process and having that kind of that piece, that nugget, it was like, if I, if I can beat these people in practice consistently, then I know I can get there. You know what I mean? And so that, that's where some of that resiliency and confidence came from and understanding, like you said, the journey is the reward. And, and, Maybe this is because I grew up around, you know, old people or older people um, my whole life. But I've been blessed to kind of take that perspective. Like the journey is the reward. You know what I mean? Like why do people continue to try to get more championships than just one? Right. Like if it was just about getting to one singular destination then people would get there and, you know, stop. But like the more you understand it, like every day waking up and putting the work in is the reward. The constant, you know, formation of your body and your mind and the reinforcing of that resiliency and confidence and the lessons you'll be able to give to your son and, you know, to to the youth when you try to give back, like all those things, like that is the reward. That's what it is. I'm saying that's what this thing is about. Wow. Wow, man. You go from zero workouts for any team before the draft Mm -hmm. to being this star. Now, and I think, I think, you know, what's more gratifying for you, if I, if I'm reading our conversation and knowing you, it's, it's the journey, you know, Yeah. tell me about cultivating that mindset every single day, right? The discipline to continue to have that mindset of greatness or to be elite no matter what. Um, how about that? How, tell me about that from a daily perspective for you. Well, you know, I, I spoke about growing up with old people and them talking about the journey being a reward. And I also spoke about not, uh, you know, having regrets later in life. So I think when you kind of combine those concepts, those those foundational type of concepts, uh, that that's why I work the way I do or try the things that I try and, you know, ex- expose myself to criticism or ridicule or whatever it is, because it brings me a piece. I'm saying a, a lot of people try to find their their peace from the the world or you know they you know this person said I'm good and so it, it brings me that that confidence or that peace or whatever it is. And don't get me wrong, it always feels good when people tell you you're good. So I'm not here saying <laughs> that it never feels good because it definitely does. 
But like honoring the journey and knowing that later in life, I, well, I tried it, you know what I mean? And so there, there's no reason to regret. Like, and, and also like a lot of times on the other side of fear is that type of calmness in that space. Like we, we end up having so much anxiety or fear over something that probably won't even happen half the time. You know what I mean? We'll, we, we think like, oh, if we do this, everybody will hate me. And in all actuality, the way the media cycle works, oh, they got mad for 24 hours and then they forgot. You know what I mean? Like, but we were so bound up. We were so afraid. Like we didn't try it because we thought somebody would call us crazy, you know, or, or man, he's a weird cryptocurrency kid or something like that. But <laughs> I was true to myself and I had fun with it. And I've also been blessed to make a bunch of different connections with people that have like minds, you know what I'm saying? In that type of space and things like that. So, you know, you just kind of got to go for it. I love that. I love that, man. Being all in. I think you, you, you're a Renaissance man. Um, and I don't just in this interview want to quantify you to just being a ball player. It's what you do, but it's not who you are. Like we said earlier, Thank you. but for, from a basketball perspective now, your career has taken off, man. I'm so proud of you watching you from afar you. because you do something that not too many people can do on the basketball court and that's score the basketball. And I personally have an appreciation for score. So, <laughs> As you should. Yes. So watching you, man, it, it makes me, it makes me, uh, it makes me smile being a second round pick myself and going through what I had to go through to accomplish the things. And, and you, let me just say this to you. You will be an all-star as well. Um, you've already you. been uh, an all-star talent. Um, it's going to come your way, man. Um, do you miss now that you're not in the bubble? And obviously we, for those who don't know, Spencer opted not to be uh, playing in the NBA the rest of the season because he had tested positive for COVID-19 and opted not to play in the NBA, uh, which makes sense. Do you miss it now that it started to start back up a little bit? Oh, 1,000%. 1,000%. I mean, you know, for for my specific case, it was actually a little bit unique just because of the timing and the fluctuation of the positive and negative tests and, uh, you know, how long I had kind of just been quarantined and just in the bed, essentially the doctors actually were just like, Hey, like this doesn't really make much sense. You know what I mean? Like we, we respect you trying to fight and come back, but this doesn't really make much sense. So, you know, obviously I took the doctor's advice and, you know, play a long game, understanding where our team is at and all that other stuff. Um, you, you, you try to operate, um, with, with the best knowledge base possible. Like, you know, we, we bet on ourselves, but we also have to listen to experts too, right? You always need good counsel. So I'm not yeah. going to go against doctors in terms of health stuff. Um, with that being said, don't be scared. Like I'm, I'm pretty solid now, so it's, it's all good, but yeah, no watching the games. Yeah. It definitely makes you miss it. I mean, I, I don't know anybody that has, has lived and breathed the sport, you know what I'm saying? The way the NBA players have, and then you know, when they, when they see basketball on TV and, and, and can't be a part of it, uh, that they don't, that there's not that itch. You know what I mean? Like, every, I, I know you still had that itch, you know what I'm saying? At times for sure. Like, so that's just the way this thing kind of rolls. It's, it's, it's a slight itch. Uh, you, you're yeah. right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's always, a, it's a part of who we are always. Uh, I'm, I'll be 41, uh, in August and been retired eight years, but yeah, I mean, I got a court in my house and I still, you know, like my son and we still play a little bit, you know, as far as shooting. But um, there, it, will, it will always be there. You mentioned a point within that, though, about mentorship and having people around you that mm-hmm. is going to keep you sober minded. Isn't there a thin line between being delusional and being a go getter? Yeah, but I mean, they, they said Steve Jobs was delusional. They say any mm-hmm. they say Elon Musk is delusional half the time. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody that's tried to accomplish anything big um, hasn't been called something like that at one point in time because what you're doing is outside the norm. And mm-hmm. if it was inside the norm, more than likely one of the big companies like Amazon, Google, you know what I mean, would have would have done it already. Because why wouldn't they, right? They 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 snatch up all the all the all the normal stuff as it is. So, you know, that's that's part of kind of how it goes. But to your point of mentorship keeping you sober minded, you always want to surround yourself with experts in their field, right? Um, if I use basketball as an example, if I was going to have somebody train my son and it was either, you know, the guy down the street or Michael Red, I'm probably having Michael Red do it. Like that's just how it goes. And so in any industry, you're going to have those opportunities 
especially when you're a high functioning person yourself to be able to reach out to, you know, the CEO of Google or the CEO of Facebook or, you know, whoever it is and say, look, like I need help or, you know, mentorship or whatever in this, in this area. And a lot of times guys don't want to humble themselves to do that, but you got to realize the same way they wouldn't tell you how to play basketball is the same way you can't go there and tell them how to run their company or run their, run their tech space. You might have an idea that fits within their tech space, but, you know, soaking up the knowledge and, and getting some guidance, regardless of whether they're older or younger or whatever, is always a, a smart route to go. Now, I had this conversation with Josh Childress, and, and you make up a great point because, you know, there is this thought that because I'm senior level in this particular space, that that would necessarily transition over to the next space. And what I discovered, retiring from basketball and going into venture, that I was junior level leaving a senior space. And humility, humility is very, very critical in transitioning. For you, from a basketball standpoint and also from a business standpoint, who have been some of your mentors? Um, from a basketball standpoint, I'll say that in terms of like NBA mentors, Karan Butler is, is definitely one. Uh, he was big for me. Jeremy Lin was, was really big for me when I got to Brooklyn, for sure. Um, on the venture side, a, a man by the name of Jason Mendelson. Um, out of Colorado, he's he's been a, a great help. You know, in terms of like names that people would would probably know, I, w- I would say those those guys have definitely really helped. And obviously, you have like your parents, and you know, my, my uncle is still my primary trainer to this day. You know, and he he played high school basketball at a high level and had you know some D one scholarships, things like that. Never made the league, but you know, was good in his own right. Yeah, I mean, it, it comes in various forms and fashion, but you know. I try to humble myself when I'm talking to, you know, the, these guys in the in the tech space. You know, and I've been I've been blessed to talk to, you know, just just a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The platform or the NBA has allowed us to have an incredible reach globally, and to be able to meet anybody in at any time, which we're all blessed to be able to do that. You have a great quote. You know, I'm just a tech guy with a jumper. <laughs> That's a powerful, powerful quote because. A lot of times when you're engaged in your career, you're not almost allowed. I know when I played, you weren't almost allowed mm-hmm. to think about other options and other things to get into. So for you to flip the script and say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm not just a baller, but I'm, I'm a well-rounded person, human being. I think that's a powerful statement. I'm a tech guy with a jumper. Talk about that. Um, well, what that kind of meant to me was following the path of, of – being misunderstood and and when i was talking about bitcoin and you know likeness rights and contract tokenization and and stuff of that nature people were kind of like hey you know you're not focused you're not this you're not that and you know at first my response was was obviously the the typical rebuttal like how could i be here right and not be focused how could i be here and not love the game how could i go through what I've gone through in terms of the injury, in terms of, you know, second round pick, all the stuff that we've uh, touched on previously and me not be dedicated. Like you don't turn from that 150th person in your high school class to a 20 point a game score in the league by not being focused, dedicated, working hard, all these, all these other aspects, right? Like I wasn't a number one pick. They didn't put marketing hype machine, Nike, all this stuff behind me to where it was right. just, you know, guaranteed. Like I had to sit and wait my turn wait for guys to get hurt, you know, capitalize on opportunity, you know, all, all these things. Right. So the, at first it was kind of that, that readiness to compete with these people or rebut it because it, it was kind of offensive really that they would even say that. And then it was like, you know what? Own your difference. Like, why are you even wasting the time on it? Like, and granted, I still engage on Twitter cause I love the banter, but you know, I wasn't, necessarily locking in on some of that as much as I had in the past. I still say it and, and do it off the cuff and have a little bit of fun. And maybe people think I'm really, you know, mad or sad or whatever it is when I'm typically not, but owning like what, what it is that you do. And it's like, Hey, look, if y'all think that I'm not focused at this point, it kind of is what it is because I'm going to keep doing my, my startup. I'm going to keep talking about, blockchain, contract tokenization, likeness, things like that, and how athletes can empower themselves. And then I'm also going to put 20 on your favorite team. So 
if you're going to be mad, then you just got to be mad. I absolutely love it. Like distinction is what stands out. There's a lot of books, but a lot of books don't go New York bestseller, right? So, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's distinction is what makes the difference. That has your innovative mindset. You can see when you play even, you know, there's there's creativity within your game. I think that spills out into every compartment of your life. And it's been incredible to watch from a basketball standpoint, but that also led you to your own shoe. Yeah. Talk about that innovation. Um <laughs> It was a pain point, right? That that how it started because no one sponsored yep. you. Nobody wanted to, yep. you know, take a bet on you, but you took a bet on yourself. Explain that. Kind of the same thing. The funniest part about this is when I started this whole process, like I wasn't even super solid in the league. You know, people don't even know that because it takes. You're probably gonna have to do a, a good year's worth of groundwork to get to having a shoe. So if you see somebody that created their own shoe, whatever date it released go back 12, 18 months, and that's probably around when it started. But, you know, basically with that being said, I, I used to draw shoes as a kid. I'm not a great artist overall, but for whatever reason, I can kind of draw shoes a little bit. So, you know, it was it was a it was a passion when I was a kid. Nobody wanted to sign me. I had a little bit of money, and depending upon which route you go and how much you're trying to spend on a shoe and all these other things, it doesn't have to be the most expensive project in the world. And it made me happy. So I was like, you know, one of the things I wanted to do when I was a kid was play in the league in my own shoe. And obviously at the time, like I envisioned having a Nike sponsorship and whatever, but you kind of get to the place where you're like, look, if I want, if I can draw it and I can create it, you know, and it can be technologically superior to theirs, why don't you just do it? And, you know, excuse me for using the Nike tagline, but that's kind of what happened. And I did it. And then obviously, you know, the years that I've played in my shoe have been my two best years. So you know, call it luck, call it, you know, serendipitous or whatever. But, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to slow down now. I call it betting on yourself. There we period. go. You are the secret to your success, man. And I think you are ahead of your time. And you're, you're, what you're doing right now is needed for the time as far as being an example to other athletes about leveraging yeah. your influence and yeah. your brand, right? I think historically, you know, athletes weren't cognizant of their brand and and how to have it reach beyond the game. And so I think while you're playing, man, it's such a powerful thing that you're doing, man, to continue to be versatile. Who who inspired you from that standpoint um, to, to think about that? You know, honestly, I, I can't pinpoint a, a single individual. Uh, some of this is from, you know, foundation from my parents. Some of this is yeah. from wants and dreams. Some of this is from, you know, a, a lot of times I'll, I'll sit at the crib and if I'm not like working or answering emails or something like that, I'll just be like listening to podcasts about yeah. various topics. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like whether it be finance, uh, you know, global macro trends, you know, blockchain, I listen to a lot, like sure. stuff like that. And it, and it, those things inspire you, right? Because the, you, you can get a lot of knowledge from reading or listening to very smart people talk, right. And, yes. and listening to Ted talks or whatever. So, you know, that's, probably i mean that's where like those that launch pad or that foundation of ideas starts to flow because you're hearing all these people talk about their various experiences and you know your niche and what you can do and how you can leverage certain things i mean and obviously with social media being what it is today like guys at the end of the day we are the asset you know what i mean and as long yeah. as the consumer continues to spend their money we will have a job you know what I mean? Like, like yeah. I think in the old times, we got too caught up thinking like all the value was in the NBA. And don't be wrong. Like they're a great league. They, you know, all the leagues are great. They, they have, you know, inherent value and they do provide a service and they do their part. But the fans spend money to be attached to the competition, the yeah. excellence, you know, all that stuff. Like, you know, they're, they're not inherently attached to the Nets logo as if it was a Picasso. Like that's not what it is. You know what I mean, it's a representation of these men going to compete at the highest level and being excellent in their craft and being one of approximately 5,000 in the history of mankind to be able to do something like this. And then the even more elite of those typically possess some type of athletic capability that, you know, puts them, you know, they, they can run a four five or four four and they can jump 40 inches off the ground or their hand-eye coordination is so great that they can shoot a ball from 40 feet and put in a little bitty hoop. Like those are things that you just can't do. It's like the equivalent of 
the Coliseum in modern day or shooting a bow and arrow back in the day. Like that's what, you know, this is. And, and that's why fans are tied to it. Fans are drawn to it. There's that fandom associated with it. And, you know, as long as you're using your likeness and leverage for good purposes, why shouldn't you drive it to the wheels fall off? If you're making the fans happy and they're the most key piece of the ecosystem, because if they're having fun, we all have a job. Why would you be limited in how you can do that? I think you're a trailblazer for your generation in that mindset. Like, because the NBA is somewhat of a broker slash mm-hmm. glorified service provider, right? <laughs> and, and you said it, not me. No, no, I'm out the NBA now. <laughs> but, but you said it a little bit, though, in a sense, <laughs> because and it's so powerful. I don't want to put you on the spot, but you're absolutely right as far as leveraging, I would say, leverage the platform of the NBA to do greater things, right? To, to go yeah. beyond. Um, and, and let me ask you this question, um, cause I don't want to get us in trouble, but the thing is, do the modern player, do they see themselves in that light or, or are you kind of like sticking out? Like, to me, I haven't heard too much or too many people with the intellectual capital that you have. They're the face of things and they're intrigued with VC and venture and private equity and things of that nature. But the intellectual capital, because when you listen to Ted talks and podcasts, you're game filming. That's yeah. what you're doing. Exactly. So tell me about the modern athlete and the guys in the locker room. Do they think like this? I think it's I think it's somewhere in the middle. I think it's trending towards this direction, but right. it's not quite there yet. I think, like you said, before when it was, oh, I don't I don't know about my finances. My financial advisor just does all that. I don't worry about it. Now you're starting to see people dip their toe in the VC, learn about companies, learn about, you know, Maybe trends in the market. Oh, do, do we have a little, you know, recession level event because of COVID? Are we heading to a depression level event? You know what I'm yep. saying because of COVID. Is it gonna? Is the market or is COVID gonna catch up to the market essentially and 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 you know tank it, especially with the presidential election coming out? So there's there's a lot of different things that I think guys are starting to look at or maybe say like, oh, over there I might want to go over there and 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 like I said, dip my dip my toe in the water. Um, and I think one of the other reasons why I do what I do and do it kind of in a public fashion and, and am outspoken about it is back to that regrets thing. I, sure. wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to have been the guy that had all these ideas, knew they were good, maybe even capitalized on some behind the scenes, but like did it so silently and so secretively that I was the only one to benefit. And then when somebody turns around and says, well, how'd you do it? I say, well, this is how I did it. But if you don't move ultra silently, they're going to kill you. You know what I mean? I, w- I would want to take those arrows and take those bullets. Because if I stand up and say, hey, like, why can't fans help me decide where I go in free agency? Like, people at Nike do it. People at Adidas tell them where to go. People at their mom, their dad, their family, their agent, their business advisor for tax purposes. They, they let all types of people factor in their decisions. But if the fans are most important, why can't I let the fans help me? I'm not saying, like, Let's circumvent the cap and I'll go there for a dollar. No, but if I have two offers on the table from legit teams, legit offers, and I'm really having a trouble, you know, making the decision if it's the Nets or the Knicks, right? Or something like that. I just use them because they're in New York, obviously. Sure. Why can't the fans say, well, Spence, we think you should go to the Knicks or to the Nets or whatever it is. So that that's the way I view it. Um, and, you know, you take the bullets and, and everything, but what it will also do is it'll kind of make that path easier for the next person that wants to do it and as that momentum goes like then then there's true player empowerment so rich man uh, what you're sharing so (laughs) back to the renaissance back to the enigma you create your own shoe Mm -hmm. you're killing it on the court and then you know what i'm gonna start my own vc (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's like, wow, like all of what you're able to handle. And and so the idea of the venture piece, what was the motivation? Where did that come from as far as starting your own venture uh, firm? So it was preparing for where I wanted to go. You know what I mean? So uh, remember, like we talked about, a lot of these things happen 18 months or so worth of planning. And then you finally figured out, well, the venture piece is more so actually you heard about it first to have some of that marketing traction but it's going to be something that continues to be built out and fleshed out over the coming 
you know, months and time period. Because if you look at the way very, very wealthy people move, um, and this is a secret and a trick that a lot of people don't know um, when they first get into VC, they actually create what, what are called family offices. You know what I mean? So it's literally like their family's wealth. Um, and then they'll piggyback big time VC firms, right? So now you don't have the the carry or you know any of the fees associated with doing the diligence and betting companies and all that stuff because you might have a sequoia of the world who is going to put people through an extremely stringent diligence process before they even invest in a company, right? But you as a family office can just say, hey, Sequoia, what are you, what are you doing? Uh, oh, you're going to invest in those three companies? Well, I have enough capital to invest in two of them, so I'll just pick the two that I like the most. You know what I mean? And that's how you can get into venture in a kind of safe, pragmatic way without outlaying too much capital in terms of really uh, vetting all of the incoming deal flow. And you create that family office setting because if I am fortunate to get another contract at the level of the type of contract that you know my, my play kind of, or that would be requisite to my play, then I wouldn't want to be in a situation where I didn't have a family office. You know, I was having this conversation with a player uh, the other day and he was saying like, you know, should I partner with you to try to do a VC fund or should I, you know, listen to this guy or listen to this person? And I gave him the exact same advice. I said, bro, you got a hundred plus million dollars. You have, you, there's no reason to really partner with me. Like I can take a fee and take a carry, but like, there's no reason to do that. Start your own family office. You are filthy rich, but piggyback, at least to start, give yourself a you know year, two-year window where you're piggybacking these big-time VC companies and you're learning the game. And then if you say, okay, their deals are too safe, I want a, a bigger risk profile, then you hire somebody after you have uh, you know a ton of portfolio companies after a year or two. You know, you've, you've kind of dipped your toe in, you've kind of been learning, you've kind of been researching. Now you, you hire some people that vet companies and are professionals in doing that. And then you open yourself up and say the X family office is open for deal flow. And then it's going to be a gold rush because you're still going to be playing in two years and you'll get pitched by everybody and their mama. And now your guys will just have to sort through, piece through put put together the type of risk profile or you know target the markets that you're actually going after and then there you go you'll you'll get exactly what you want in terms of a custom built VC fund empowerment brother empowerment is what i'm hearing mm-hmm. and what you're doing is so powerful because everybody doesn't have access to that level of deal flow um as you know there's maybe 1% of all african americans represented in venture yep less than 1% of venture-backed companies are um, investing into minority companies. So I hope I said that right. But anyhow, <laughs> anyhow. It sounds um, right. It was a low you're, number. You're, you're, creating, you're creating an ecosystem, man. And I love the focus, right, is to actually look at every opportunity, and particularly African-American startups. Talk about that. Ooh. Um, the lay of the land my, well, it's kind of sort of changing over the last two months for, for obvious reasons, given George Floyd and, and the nation, well, really the globe kind of uh, turning their attention to it. And I think that'll probably last maybe through the end of the year. You'll have a, a good little runtime where, where people are going to be really turning their attention to black founders, um, ethnic founders and the initiatives that they're trying to create. Um, prior to that, though, I mean, it's just like anything, really, um, because I, I have a less uh let me you know go after all the quote-unquote racism or whatever um i'm not as like visceral in my reaction i understand you know that everybody's not bad um but with that being said in the venture space and in private wealth and, and large wealth in general it's it's a good old boys club a lot of this stuff is family money handed down or you know you you get the the occasional rock star that rockets up the system because they create a company or sold a piece of technology or something but you know it becomes an echo chamber you know what i'm saying and, and and not even saying those people are bad but if you're always in a room and all the people in the room look like you you start to feel like all the people that are capable of being in that room look like you 
It's just the way it works. You know what I mean? When we're when we're playing basketball, and I'll, I'll use it for an example because we are elite. We are the best at what we do. When we're in the NBA locker room, if we were to see a NBA team have 10 Caucasians, immediately we'd probably be like, all right, they can shoot and we're going to kill them. Like, <laughs> that would be kind of how it is. So, so it becomes almost an echo chamber of thoughts. So I, I don't want to condemn everybody there are there are a lot of people that that have poor views that i'm against you know what i mean and you know a lot of them do have a lot of money like that's part of the world we live in but there's also a lot of people that get so siloed in their echo chamber that they start to think like i said the only people capable of being in the room are the people that look like them because that's all they ever see when that's not the case at all because some of the most creative, most brilliant people just don't have the opportunity or resources to get to that room. They can't break through that ceiling. They don't have that initial NBA badge or cosign or logo that rockets them through that glass ceiling. And then they can sit at the room and, and at those tables and say, look, I have these really cool ideas. I may need some guidance, but I also not coming from a place of less than or poverty or whatever, because I have this also contract backing me that states i can sit here you know what i mean yeah man i you're hitting on a a myriad of things i want to ask your opinion about obviously uh has affected the nba number of Mm -hmm. businesses around the world but the racial injustice uh issues that have have arise arisen i wouldn't even say arisen i think technology caught on tape and film so but how the nba has responded to to that your opinions on that and um can we do more I'll go COVID first, racial second. In terms of COVID, I think that's such a, like, I think everybody was caught off guard. I think the NBA did everything they possibly could. You know, who who really plans for this? Even with the NBA having, like, the pandemic clause in terms of money, they never planned for it in terms of resources, you know, how are we going to play games, where are we going to send people? You know, they, they nobody did. Nobody saw this coming. Nobody saw it sweeping really the globe the, the way it did. Um, until it was already kind of in process. So, you know, definitely an A-plus from the NBA in terms of how they handled it and also getting a safe return to play, you know, with, with there being no cases in the last, I think it was like, what, week or something like yeah. that yeah. in the bubble. So, you know, all credit to Adam Silver. Uh, they did their thing with that, did their job, um, and it's exciting to have basketball back. Racial, this this to me, again, is is extremely nuanced, right? I think because of the way everything happened, there were a lot of forced responses. Um, people had to take a stand, pick which way they were going to go, you know, whether they were comfortable with it or not. Um, I think obviously the the NBA sides with the players is one of the most forward-thinking uh, leagues in it. I mean, they have Black Lives Matter on the court, you know, et cetera, et cetera, allowing people to put names on, you know, the back of their jerseys that, that can help facilitate some awareness. So I completely understand I also, though, and, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think as a society we should look to capitalistic organizations for moral thought leadership, right? You want the NBA to be a business that provides the best game possible and makes the most money possible and does these things, but then you also want them to be you know the the moral compass of the entertainment industry that's a really hard place to be in because no matter which side of the moral compass you're on and granted there is a right and wrong side but you're always going to piss off mm-hmm. what 49 percent of the demographic like like it's 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 a mess of situation to be in when like the nba sole focus quite honestly should be how best do we make money this is not about black, white, brown, anything. Like we're trying to put on the best game possible and make the fans as happy as possible because that's what drives our game. So I really think the NBA is in a, in a tough position, quite honestly. And as a society, you know, we should be looking inward for our moral compass, not so much looking at leagues. I mean, I would, I would even rather look at your specific, you know, uh, idols or mentors or, you know, Look at a LeBron James, I guess, if that's your idol or whatever for, you know, some maybe moral guy. Like everybody's going to need that kind of person or whatever that helps them in life, even if it's from afar. But asking a capitalistic league to make that 
type of like stand and decision, like that's 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 tough in my in my eyes. I think you're, you're bringing up some really, really hot takes, brother, and it's been powerful, man. I, I got a couple more for you in, within that. Um, I think, um, and I want to get your perspective on this, I'm appreciative of the symbolism. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we got to continue to push uh, the needle on executive hires yep. within the NBA and every professional league as far as... This is, I, I love this topic. <laughs> Pushing the needle on, on, on executive lever hires. Um, and ownership within those leagues. Uh, because at the end of the day, I appreciate all the symbolism and all of that. But at the end of the day, that's not really moving the needle in my perspective. And I want to hear your thoughts on this as far as wealth transferring, right, to African. So, yeah, you, you know where I'm at. Go ahead. No, nah, there, there it is. That's, that's 100% what it is. You okay. know, I, I speak about or made a tweet about, you know, the debt, group economics, how pretty much like, you know, bang together, you know, can have this massive kind of just leadership in, in, in what happens in, in shaping worldviews because people don't want, you know, ethnic dollars just all of a sudden siphoned off from the global economy. Like that's, you know, that's going to hurt them a ton, right? So when you look at, once again, a capitalistic organization, the best way you can give back is in what you're supposed to be good at. So if you're making money, right, and you're doing the best job possible to make this game as good as possible, why can't a LeBron James have, you know, uh, negotiate his contract so that he has 1% of team ownership mm-hmm. at the team that he's on? Why mm-hmm. can't he do that? Why is he capped in what, you know, he can make in the sense of not not that a side cap is terrible, right? Because you want things to have a loose-ish framework. But we look at baseball and, and how people get, you know, all types of structurings of a contract and, you know, why, why can't a LeBron, if he's bringing in all these butts to the seats, be like, hey, look, I only want to make $15 million a year, but I want 1% carry in the Lakers that vests when I retire or whatever it is. You know what I'm saying? So I think reimagining how you, uh, you know, unlock these boxes is much more impactful for the NBA to do than to put Black Lives Matter on the court. Now, mm-hmm. once again, like I said, they're walking a fine line, but I feel like sure. they should be purely capitalistic. And then that means in the way that you support um, ethnic people in your lane is by facilitating some of that wealth transfer. You know what I mean? Like facilitating some of that empowerment. Facilitating like, oh, if these players are truly special and bring in X amount of dollars, like if LeBron James makes me $100 million a year, but I can only pay him 35 well, how are we going to make up for at least another – 30 you know what i mean because there's got to be a profit margin but how can we get him up to you know 60 70 million dollars in value mm-hmm. right you know and do, and do it in a transparent manner as well next question i have for you man because you're such an inspiration when i talk about what's next what i'm hearing from you um from this crypto play man the tokenization mm-hmm. of your earning potential man uh if you want to tap on that a little bit i think it's an incredible innovative process yeah no i mean Personal tokenization, to me, really only limits you based upon your own imagination. And then that's kind of the premise of my thought. I think that's the premise of where people are going. Um, I don't want to divulge too much because, yep. you know, my company goes really live, live in another like six to eight weeks. So we're, we're really excited about that because it's been a long journey. Probably been barking up this tree for 18 months, a year, something like that. Uh, but yeah, no, it, it's really exciting. I, I think it's a paradigm shift. And, you know, I, I just I just love my first movers advantage right now. But it's it's an empowerment play for sure. So that uh, that's something that is going to be probably widely talked about in another two months or so. If you had to go back to your 16-year-old self, mm-hmm. what would you advise him? Oh, uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I would say, you know, take a deep breath. You're going to be who you want to be. It won't be easy. But, like, always make sure you keep the work first. Like, and not the work in terms of the slang term. I mean, like, the dedication to the craft. You know what I mean? The dedication to the pursuit of knowledge, the pursuit of learning. You know, watch your film. Like, do all those things. Like, I, I know at 16 how much like 
not like true anxiety because I know people like really suffer from anxiety. So I don't want to like take it there and say a taboo word. But I just know how much like pent up like, will I be able to do it? I possessed. You know what I mean? Like I wanted to so bad that it was like, obviously all I thought about and all I dreamt about, but I just, I just wanted it so bad. And, you know, just that journey is the reward that you, you've known from when you were a kid. You're, Cause that was a time period where, you know, adolescence, you're, you're trying to grow and mature back into whatever man you're going to be, which typically has a lot of lessons from childhood, but at adolescent phase, you're kind of going through your own little rocky stuff. So that would that would be what it was about, like you know, take a deep breath, keep keep the the main thing, the main thing, and you'll be who you wanted to be. I know you're a visionary. We went back. Now I'm going to go forward. <laughs> what do you see in the next ten years for Spencer Dinwiddie? Ten years. So at 27, I probably got seven, maybe eight more years planned. So I'll be freshly ish retired. If my company does what it needs to do in the next three years, then that'll be a very interesting conversation. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's it's hard. I mean, the, the only thing I keep thinking of is like, just 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 go be a dad. There you, know you I mean? go. Yeah. I, I think one of the the best honors is uh, to be able to take care of your people and be able to be present and all that stuff. And I have a two year old son, so he'll be twelve. He'll be really trying to figure out life at that point. So just be a dad best answer yet uh, <laughs> a greater honor and privilege my brother it's been an honor man thank you so much for taking the time that hour went by like 10 minutes quick i know like <laughs> quick. but we're, we're certainly like-minded man in a lot of things and i just so appreciate what you're doing how you're trailblazing how you're leading um in so many areas and just continued success and everything brother thank you man i really appreciate it absolutely really appreciate it If that doesn't get you motivated, I don't know what does. What an amazing testament to staying true to yourself, owning your differences, and chasing your passions with excellence. Spence continues to inspire me, and I hope he does the same for you. Thanks for listening to today's episode. To read the show's notes, learn more about my work, or connect with me, visit michaelred.com. New episodes release every week on Monday, so make sure to subscribe if you want to stay up to date. Until next time, I'm Michael Red, and remember, you are the secret to your success.